I would, you know, Southwest, one of the things I loved about Southwest Airlines, we always flew Southwest. And the thing about Southwest Airlines, if you're the last one on the plane, you get stuck in some middle seat away from your friends. And I would deliberately be the last one on the plane. And then, oh, geez, guys, I, I got to sit over here by myself in the middle. But then I could get my book out and read. And I remember often being the, deliberately being the last one on the plane. So I didn't have to talk about basketball with the players and coaches. And I could read. And even in the hotel rooms as a recruiter or at, on games, I would I all, almost never turn the television on. I just I just was always sort of a closeted reader and that I got very interested in the writing life. And when I came to New Mexico State, I left UTEP and came to New Mexico State and I met a writer named Robert Boswell. He loved basketball. And so we started hanging around. And he, of course, he wanted to talk about basketball, but I wanted to talk about books. That was Russ Bradford, author of the book Patty on the Hardwood. Hello and welcome to episode 80 of the Irish Baseball Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Becker. Russ Bradford was an assistant basketball coach at UTEP and New Mexico State, a basketball broadcaster and professor at New Mexico State, a self-taught fiddler who has performed and recorded in Ireland, and an author of books like Patty on the Hardwood and 40 Minutes of Hell. He's back on the show for the second time. On today's show, he's going to focus a little more on his writing career, but you can head to irishbaseball.org and hear the first part of our conversation in episode 59. To start today's talk, I wanted to address how two schools that are just a short drive from the Mexican border in UTEP and New Mexico State don't have baseball programs despite the popularity of the sport in the area. Do you have some opinions on that, Russ? Yes, and El Paso has the minor league team, the El Paso Diablos. I think are they're double A now. But even it, it, you know, for years, the El Paso Diablos would get huge crowds, especially particularly in the time after UTEP dropped their dropped their baseball team. And so I, I, I do think it's a great tragedy that UTEP doesn't have baseball. But my understanding is it's a Title IX issue, and without getting into an argument about the politics of it, one of the problems for every but, you know, that, you know, of course, we're all for equality for the women's teams and that kind of thing. But the problem is football has 80 or something scholarships and there's no equivalent on the women's side. And so in order to even out the number of scholarships on both sides, there's no women's football, but there's women's softball, which, of course, is just sort of a cousin of baseball. And, the, you know, there's there's swimming on both sides and there's track on both sides and there's you know, b- basketball on both sides, but what are we going to do with these? There's an extra 80 football scholarships. Many of many division one schools don't have uh, men's volleyball, but there's, but there's just no way to even out the scholarships. And I think that's why uh, baseball got dropped at UTEP. So I want to move on to your writing career. You definitely have your hand in a lot of jars here. You have the fiddle, you have basketball coaching. Now you have broadcasting and You have written a number of books and you're continuing to write books. So when did you find the need to move into writing or was that sort of always part of the plan? Well, one of the things I remember as an assistant coach, I would, you know, Southwest, one of the things I loved about Southwest Airlines, we always flew Southwest. And the thing about Southwest Airlines, if you're the last one on the plane, you get stuck in some middle seat away from your friends 
and I would deliberately be the last one on the plane. And then, oh, geez, guys, I, I got to sit over here by myself in the middle. And, but then I could get my book out and read. And I remember often being the, deliberately being the last one on the plane. So I didn't have to talk about basketball with the players and coaches. And I could read. And even in the hotel rooms as a recruiter or on games, I would I all, almost never turn the television on. I just I just was always sort of a closeted reader and that I got very interested in the writing life. And when I came to New Mexico State, I left UTEP and came to New Mexico State and I met a writer named Robert Boswell. He loved basketball. And so we started hanging around. And he, of course, he wanted to talk about basketball, but I wanted to talk about books. And so I eventually got, I started sitting in on his classes, even when I was coaching. And then eventually, but I think I burned out a little bit because uh, you know, as a recruiter, it's quite a grind. And, you know, after 14 years as a college recruiter, I just decided, I think I'm going to try something else here. And so I wound up in the year 2000, I'm somewhat of a midlife crisis, I suppose. I turned 40 and I thought I'm going to, so I went into Lou Henson, the famous coach and said, coach, I think I'm going to quit and, and try to be a writer. And he said, wait here a minute. I thought he was going to be angry. And he came back and said, well, I've got the athletic director to agree to pay for your graduate school. Well, that was, it wasn't the greatest buyout. It wasn't like the kind of buyout that, you know, the NBA coaches get, but that really helped. It took the pressure off me because I was making pretty good money at the time. I was making 70,000 in 2000, which is a lot of money in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Um, and I was able to, you know, afford it. So I went to the, went to the graduate school for two years here and got my MFA. And then that's when I went to Ireland and thought, well, this will, and my original plan, Rick, was I thought I'll get the master's degree and then I'll go coach in Division Three because I I was a bad Division Three bench warmer, but it seemed like a purer level in some ways. No one's on scholarship; everyone does it for the love of the game. And so I went into I, I thought I'll get my graduate degree, but I had trouble finding a head Division Three job. But here was this job in Ireland came available. And that was sort of, uh, and then when I came back from Ireland, the book got published. And as you know, just because you're a good player in baseball or basketball, doesn't mean they're going to make you the man. They're going to make you the manager. Like Mickey Mantle was a great player, but in a million years, no one would have hired him to be the manager. But, and in basketball, even though Dennis Rodman was a great player, we would never hire Dennis Rodman to be the coach. But in academia, it's a, it's very different that if you've got a book in academia, you're suddenly somebody. And I was teaching part-time as an adjunct, making very little money. I think I was making 17000 for the year, but my book came out. And they called me in one day and said, we're going to promote you to being a professor. Uh, you know, they were impressed that I'd written written and published a book. And the book, it was, it was Patty on the Hardwood, the book about a journey in Irish hoops, Patty on the Hardwood. It was, a, you know, it was with the University of New Mexico Press, but it made a little bit of a splash because it was such a weird story. And it it was it would be a little bit like, it would be a little bit like averaging uh, 25 points a game at West Virginia Wesleyan. Like, yeah, it's 25 points a game. The book did well, well but it's still with a small press. Nobody cared, but in academia, they cared. And so they called me and they promoted me and I became a professor. And I remember a month after being promoted to being a professor, they called me in again and said, we need a copy of your resume. And I thought, well, that's odd. Usually you would give the resume before the before. But I didn't even interview for the job. And I think it's one of the peculiar things about academia is by having a book, you're somebody. 
in sports, we're not foolish enough to think just because someone was a good player that they're going to be a good leader in this in the sports. You can imagine some of the like you would never hire Mike Tyson to be the bot the boxing coach, and you would never hire you know you would you know you wouldn't hire Dave Kingman to be the manager. He was too surly and aggressive, and but in in academia it's different. So having the book suddenly made me somebody, and then I was lucky enough to to uh, have met Nolan Richardson and talked him into doing his biography. The the Forty Minutes of Hell became my second book, the Nolan Richardson biography, and you know, and so I'm my writing career was uh although my i don't think my coaching career i was never lucky enough to be a head division one coach but i sort of stumbled onto this career as an academic and rick i'm i'm, I'm embarrassed to tell you i was a phys ed major as an undergrad with a 2.2 grade point average and now i'm a full professor at new mexico state and so i was able to sort of uh i'm not exactly like george santos with a with a fabricated background but I have a little bit of a checkered background in academia, but was able to land on my feet and become a professor. So I was just going to say very quickly, I think when you listed off those athletes, you didn't think would end up making good head coaches. I don't think I ever would have thought that about Deion Sanders, but here he is now going to Colorado as a very successful college football coach. So I guess you never know. That's a good point. And I will say that uh, uh, there's one in Florida right now, you know, Reggie Theus is the coach at Bethune Cookman. And, but it's very rare that, that a guy who's a great, great player becomes a great coach. And you're right. Deion Sanders is the, is the, is a, certainly an exception. And you mentioned Nolan Richardson and your book, 40 minutes of hell. And this looks very interesting when you talk about having a black coach at a school like that in the deep South and dealing with the politics of race and sports. Like you don't shy away from that. You actually address it in the book. Why don't you talk about that book a little bit as well? When I first approached Nolan about the book, Nolan Richardson about the book, he, of course he won the national championship at the university of Arkansas. And I think he's the only, still the only coach to win the junior college uh, championship and the national and and a national championship. I might be wrong about. There might be one or two others. Certainly in Division One, he's the only one. But uh, when I approached Nolan, I said, I told him, I don't think you're Rick Pitino or or Jim Calhoun. I said, I think that you. I I felt like he was more closer to Jackie Robinson or Muhammad Ali, an important historical figure more so than an important coach. And so Nolan's story is a really interesting one, Rick. He grew up in El Paso. In, in in a very in the poorest neighborhood in El Paso called the Segundo Barrio, the Second Ward, and he grew up speaking Spanish, and and was the first uh, first uh, black student to attend Bowie High School, which is he he was a high school senior the year the Supreme Court 1954 Brown versus the Board of Education before that decision came down he was uh, a high school senior that year and so he had to choose. Did he want to go to the so-called Negro school, Douglas school, or did he want to go with his friends to the Mexican high, Mexican American high school, Bowie high school. So he went to Bowie high school and wound up at Texas Western. He was Don Haskins first black player, although he was already on the team before Haskins got there. Something that the movie glory road got uh, deliberately got wrong, I think, but he was an outstanding player for Don Haskins, but uh, you know, and he, he helped uh, and he was the player that would take, the recruits on recruiting trips 
you know, on the recruiting visit, he would show them around. But rather than just show them around El Paso, he took just about every black player on that 1966 team. Nolan was before the 66 team, but he took those players around. But rather than just take them around El Paso, he took them to Mexico. And in Mexico, those kids realized like, hey, it doesn't matter who we dance with. No one's going to, you know, call me the N-word. Not that anybody really would in El Paso, but it was an incredibly open society. Mexico was very welcoming. You could eat a steak dinner for $2 at the time and get a beer for 10 cents and dance with the pretty girls. And it was just a great life for them. And he wound up recruiting, helping to recruit most of that team while he was a player. And after that, you know, he became a coach. But when Nolan Richardson started his coaching career, there wasn't a single black coach in major college basketball, but he was influenced by Don Haskins and some local high school coaches and started his career. But what, one of the interesting things about Nolan is he never got over the anger that he felt like, you know, his anger really fueled him as a coach. And so sometimes anger or rejection can ruin you. You know, one of the things is I, as a writer, you constantly get rejected. Like I've got, I've got hundreds of rejections from publishers and agents but you just got to keep plugging away and i try to use it it's sometimes it can be really discouraging and you think screw it i quit but it, it, you know you have to use the negative to fuel you and what nolan did rather than saying screw it i'm not going to coach it's too hard for a black man it really fueled him and i don't think he ever got over the anger and i think what made him a great great coach eventually led to his undoing at arkansas where he was always talking about you know, racism. And I think I, uh, when I started writing out the, writing the book, I thought I'm going to expose him as being, uh, as he's claiming racism and he's making a million dollars a year. You can't have it both ways. But once I started to learn Nolan's story and started writing it, the book really changed directions. I came to believe, you know, Nolan's right about a lot of this stuff. And it's easy for all of us to say, you know, as a white guy, it was easy for me to say, hey, why don't you just get over it? And, you know, I think it's really true, Rick. I can say to you, hey, okay, your high school girlfriend dumped you, but when do you, why don't you get over it? Well, everybody gets over things in their own time. And, and uh, you know, or, or oh, geez, you, you, know, your, you, you know, your best friend died in a car crash, Rick, but you ought to get over it. Well, it's easy for me to say. And I think with Nolan, it really dug deep. And I think part of the reason that racism hit Nolan so hard is he grew up in El Paso where things were actually pretty good. And then he went out into the, what I would call the real world and wasn't, you know, it was, it was hard to get a coaching job and hard to get anyone to pay attention to you. And, and he went to the deep South to the university of Arkansas. And I think it was really difficult to get accepted, but I, I guess, so what, uh, what drove him to greatness, I think eventually is very sort of Shakespearean, although I'm no expert on Shakespeare as a, as a phys ed major at North park college, I, I never had a Shakespeare class, but it feels very Shakespearean to me what drove him, what made him a great, great coach also led to his undoing. And I think that's true, of course, with all of us is that, you know, our strengths can become our weaknesses. But I think time has proven Nolan Richardson to be correct is that Arkansas has never really, they're starting to get good again now, but they've never really recovered from, from firing Nolan Richardson. And I think his story has stood the test of time. He's in the the Nesmith Hall of Fame, and he's in the College Basketball Hall of Fame, and and his speech at the at the Nesmith Hall of Fame, you can still see it on YouTube, where he talks about you know Larry Bird and and realizing you know hearing this uh, Larry Bird on the radio, listening to the, a game on the radio where Larry Bird was destroying New Mexico State while he was driving around, and thought this Larry Bird is, and then he sees Larry Bird's picture in the paper the next day and says, 
damn, that's Larry Bird. And I think what Nolan did was upended people's expectations in the same way that Larry Bird did. When people first heard Larry Bird's name, they just assumed he was a black player. And so I, what interested me about Nolan's story is that he turned expectations upside down. He was a Spanish-speaking black man that really upended, you know, through his 40 minutes of hell and, and uh, which is the name of the book, by the way, he really upended expectations as the, and so I've always been interested in those stories like Don Haskins, who really upended people's expectations. So first of all, I'm going to state, I never had to worry about getting dumped by my high school girlfriend. So I never <laughs> had to worry about that one. The other thing I wanted to say before I let you go here is it really feels like your book, Patty on the Hardwood, for somebody who wasn't Irish and was sort of trying to find their way in a new career, trying to find some success in their career, that that trip to Ireland really solidified a lot of parts of your life and was maybe bigger than just one book. I think that's right. And I, I do think that for me, the passport was my fiddle. And I think, you know, sports is not perfect. I'm not saying that there's no racism in sports, but it's about the best hope we've got. And and in my experience, it, the coaches and the teammates don't care anything about your religion or color or anything like that. And frankly, even your, your uh, sexual preferences, if you can play, you can play. And, and, and I think, and it's the same in Irish music, is no one has ever said to me, but you're not in Ireland. I've, I've, I'm the veteran of probably a thousand Irish music sessions in Ireland, well, maybe 500 Irish music sessions in Ireland, and no one has ever been anything but welcoming to me because they see I'm not a great fiddle player, but I'm handy enough and I take it seriously and I'm not obnoxious. And I think that the, that the that, that I think that's true, is it? And sports, I think, is also the world's great passport. And if you look at Major League Baseball today, where something like a quarter of the players were born somewhere else, uh, you know, at one time it was Irish players in the 1900s, but now it's Dominicans and Cubans and Venezuelans. And sports has always been the great passport and music as well. The other one, frankly, I think sometimes Rick can be food. You know, like what got me very interested in other cultures as a kid is my father never took us for hamburgers. We never went to McDonald's. It was always, we're gonna try this Greek place and we're gonna try this Korean place. I grew up in, in Chicago and I think food can often be a, a passport as well, but nowhere is a greater passport than sports. And, and I think baseball is probably the greatest example of that in, in the world. I wanna thank you, Russ Bradford, for a fantastic conversation. I really appreciated learning about all of your books, your experience coaching, and I wish you all the luck in the future. Rick, thanks for having me, and, and thanks for all you do for baseball. To keep up to date on everything happening with the Irish American Baseball Society, including the Irish American Baseball Hall of Fame and the Irish Wolfhounds Baseball Club, head to irishbaseball.org. I'm Rick Becker, and this has been Episode 80 of the Irish Baseball Podcast.